Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, welcome back to the show. It's good to see you. It's good to see you, my too. friend, across the pond. And I'm still mad missed, you didn't hit I know, the it, sooner. I, <laughs> we we are faced, but we're doing a little experiment. So if you are sitting around and you're on Facebook because you're going COVID crazy or something, and you get a notification, we'll be we've been doing live stream stuff with the podcast. So what we're doing is actually we're recording it, and it'll go into iTunes, and you can still listen to it, like, like you know, Basecamp Radio or as it is, but. We're also doing a live stream, so you can see us, and you can even you can even, I guess, ask questions. I mean, if somebody had a question, theoretically, we could field it. So we've oh not God. done that yet. That would be okay. It'll be fun when we do that for the first time. Yeah. So here and we get are. Completely with, derailed. I mean, it's exactly. We've, we've got a pretty fragile focus on our agenda. Exactly. Already. Is, already. It may not be a good idea. Get the riddle and out. Get the Adderall. Well, let's. Uh, so I don't. I don't have time for. Um, for a long intellectual gym session with you today. So so let's just stick right in it with um, what you felt would be good fuel for our fire. Yeah, so so you and I have been talking a little bit about maps and the car- sort of a little bit. metaphor of cartography. And we said some of the things we're looking to do in this podcast is see a map, tear up a map that maybe needs tearing up or drawing a new a map that needs to be drawn as we're negotiating a new world with, which is changing all the time, especially in, mid, in the midst of pandemics and racial uh, injustice and these kind of conversations about these things and trying to figure out how to move forward in the world together. Uh, we'll be kind of looking at different maps. And I found a piece that I shared on Facebook, which I sh- I'll, be, I'll be quite honest. I was worried about sharing it because I was worried about getting canceled, like cancel culture. You know, because it, 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 seriously, I, I thought, and, I, and this is because I tend to be left of center culturally and, and, and politically. And so my sympathies tend to be with left of center kind of groups. But I, I really like Andrew Sullivan, who's a very difficult guy to pin down because he's kind of gay, Catholic, conservative, small C, but votes Democrat, HIV positive. He's, I mean, he's a very interesting guy. He wrote a piece in The Intelligencer, uh, which is from New York Magazine, which is a, a subset of, of New York Magazine, saying, is there still room for debate? And he talks about how Vaclav Havel, the, um, the great Czech Democratic activist, uh, tells the story of like a shopkeeper who put a, a sign in his shop, world, Workers of the World Unite. And Havel reflects on this in an essay called The Power of the Powerless. And he says, why did that guy do that? Because if he didn't do it, he might get ratted out for not doing it. Or he might get, he's afraid of like the, the kind of ideological force of not doing it. And I think, and, and Sullivan in this piece is, is sort of looking at the dangers of the kind of cancel call-out culture when we're debating hard things, right? That, that, that you know, he's like the pressure of, if you don't put this a certain kind of political statement on your on your Facebook wall or on your Twitter feed, then you 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 run the risk of being canceled, right? You're not sufficiently woke, or you're not sufficiently you didn't sufficiently virtue signal, or something like that. And I think that as I was reading this, I thought he's absolutely right because part of part of the thing he's saying is like, look, the Black Lives Matter movement is is great; it's a great thing for the country. Um, but 
and he thinks it's a great thing that is shedding light on a lot of systemic injustice. But he says, you know, is there this kind of, there's this kind of framework that's saying everything in the United States structural system is built on racism and institutional oppression of of African-Americans. He says, well, that's one way to look at it. And there's some truth that this stuff is interwoven in. He said, another way to look at it is that we've had this long struggle in the United States between ideals of equality and fraternity and and, and greater democratic expansion, and yet at the same time have been marginalizing people. And, and, you know, and you could look at this as something like the Civil War as this explosion of these two values and tension, right? On one hand, a liberative kind of approach. And on the other hand, this dark story of oppression. And he's like, you know, isn't this worth debating, right? Isn't this worth a conversation worth having? And he feels like we're getting in this moment where you can't even have that discussion, where if you don't, if you don't sort of say the party line around uh, institutional racist and structural racist um, ideology, if you don't tell the line, you're just silenced. And I think he, he I mean, this is a kind of thing that I think is a problem, right? Because I think we do, we are in really pernicious times and we probably need more nuanced complex thought exchange discussion than less of it you think well so this is a that was all i think a good first advertisement we'll have to drop it a couple times when we um go through this conversation for the conversation that we are convening uh next week on thursday june 25th uh, the next uh, base camp campfire where where the question that you know about a hundred of us are going to get together and ask ourselves is what is the difference between us and them? And, you know, I thought, it, you know, we thought a lot about how to craft the question that would create a space for us to, you know, not debate, but explore questions of identity. Um, and I do think that it's important to come to that conversation with a recognition that that identity is real um, and that there is a lot of complexity there that, that kind of needs to be unpacked and explored. You know, I have... This question that Andrew Sullivan writes about in this piece, um, obviously it's very timely because this is what we're all talking about. Um, one of the ways on on my side of the pond where this debate is made concrete is this kind of, it seems like an almost annual exercise that Oxford University goes through around statues of Cecil Rhodes. So Cecil Rhodes, Rhodes Scholarship, um, you know, big, big presence around Oxford, left a lot of money to this institution. Rhodesia? Yeah, was this colonial governor of like Rhodesia in Southern Africa. I mean, how how egotistical is that? Um, And was an absolutely abhorrent person um, by every standard today. And there are uh, statues of this man um, all around Oxford and 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 particularly a couple of prominent ones where it comes up for debate uh, about every year. Um, there's actually a, so the equivalent of Black Lives Matter in uh, in Oxford, and again, I know I'm talking about a very little microcosm of the world, is roads must fall. <laughs> and it actually began in Southern Africa and uh, and statues of Cecil Rhodes were, um, were torn down um, in, in parts of so- South Africa um, in kind of the first wave of this campaign. And then it kind of went back to uh, to the motherland. And so, you know, and the debate was about, you know, do we, do we, um, try every year to sort of purge our history? Um, or do we leave it there so that every year we can have this difficult conversation? Um, and I think, you know, what it, it, it does, I think when it gets good, it becomes a conversation about, well, what do we, what do we mean? You know, 
what, what does it mean to have the statue in a public place versus, say, in a museum? And, you know, is, is there anyone that deserves to be idolized forever? Um, and, and maybe, you know, maybe that is something that we'll come out of this moment with is, a, is more like, a, you know, a kind of a sunset rule on every, on every statue. After 50 years, we'll ask ourselves. But, but John, he's John, actually, Calvin, John Calvin, the great Protestant reformer, had, in his will, he, he wanted to be buried in an anonymous, an anonymous grave because he was afraid people would venerate his grave. Now I'm thinking, is that humble or arrogant? It's humble and you don't want your grave entered, but you think you're that big a deal that people would do it? I'm not sure. <laughs> but, um, but more directly, let's, you know, so it seems to me the, the, the question I'm hearing that you're grappling with is, do we, do we sometimes destroy the very space for conversation that we need. Yes. Um, and do yes. we do we sometimes, even if the direction is good, do we do we skip over the 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 social work where where we we develop you know good questions, good understanding, good good tensions, um, and 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 bury that in the in the kind of rush to to signal the virtue. Uh-huh. Right. And I think this is, I mean, okay, the, the liberal democratic project is fragile and it's only existed for a few hundred years, right? And so this kind of space, I, I'm going to quote something from the Sullivan piece where he talks about what liberalism is, and then we could talk for a minute about... I will bet I will bet that I have the same paragraph on my page right now, but I, you go. I, 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 yeah. <laughs> liberalism is not just a set of exactly. rules. Yeah. Yeah. There's a spirit to it, a spirit that believes that there are whole spheres of human life that lie beyond ideology, friendship, art, love, sex, scholarship, family, a spirit that seeks not to impose orthodoxy, but to open up the possibilities of the human mind and soul, a spirit that seeks moral clarity, but understands that it is very hard, that life and history are complex. And it is this complexity that a truly liberal society seeks to understand if it wants to advance. It's a spirit that deals with an argument and not a person, and that counters that argument with logic, not abuse. It's a spirit that allows for various ideals, ideas to clash and evolve and treat citizens as equal, regardless of their race, rather than insisting on equity for designated racial groups. It's a spirit that delights sometimes in being wrong because it offers an opportunity to figure out what's right, and it's generous, humorous, and graceful in its love of argument and debate. It gives you space to think and reflect and deliberate. Twitter, of course, is the antithesis of all this. <laughs> and it's mercy-free mob-like <laughs> qualities when combined with a moral panic are, quite frankly, terrifying. I think that paragraph is so well-written. I think it's so much the spirit of like what you've tried to cultivate at base camp. This, this real spirit of generosity, of, of delighting when you find out you're wrong, because you can find what's right. You know, Again, you tear up old maps and it leads to drawing new ones and, and leads to new exploration and, and, and wonderful wanderings. And I think that, to me, what I'm noticing is the major political divide right now that I feel existentially, it's not right-left. It's liberal, illiberal. And so I find I have more in common as a guy on the left with my center-right friends who are, who are committed to this kind of concept of liberalism than I do with people on the far left, popu- the populist kind of anti-liberals. And my conservative friends feel the same thing with like the kind of Trump populists and all the populists on the right. And I think what the populists on the right and left have in common is that they're both illiberal, that they don't value this mysterious conversation and adventure that is this kind of social experiment that we've lived in for only a few hundred years. I mean, most of world history has not produced this. So 
I mean, I guess it'd be great to get Andrew Sullivan in the room um, because I, I feel like I feel like I can I can see. I know it's an ugly term, but I, I can see both sides, and I think I'd need some help to kind of tease it out uh, because I feel like part of the so what he's basically saying is that you know liberalism is about holding the space where you can kind of talk about anything, um, even you know holding the space where things that don't even fit the context can nonetheless be discussed so that we can explore what the context is. Um, and yet, you know, I think that a lot of, um, and, and you can call it populism, but, you know, the you know, popular movements today are saying that even if you try to create that space, it's, you're going to bring into that space all sorts of illiberal stuff. So, you know, great example, you know, base camps and, you know, the way, and, and, you know, and this is a very, I think like in, in a classically liberal sense, this is a very liberal project, right? This is all for the common good, right? It is, it is nonprofit charity. There is no fee. Nobody's making any money. We all sort of contribute what we can into the pot to create this space where we can all meet the people that we're not meeting in our lives so that, you know, so that society once again has a common cook pot, a common campfire. And we're not going to try to debate and figure out who's right or wrong. We're going to, the, the test around this campfire is who can open up and who can offer something from their own perspective, from their own experience that is genuinely worthy of this space and kind of our broader purpose of getting together. I mean, all of that stuff sounds great, but, you know, it's got to start somewhere. And, you know, if, if we are some of the founding members and we look around and say, and we invite our friends, you know, a lot of the people that that I know are, you know, more white than black, for example. So if, so if it's just create the space and, and invite people to come, it's going to reproduce some of the, the kind of the structural imbalances in our society, let's say. Right. And so and so I think that's the argument for whatever, whatever it is, whatever we do, if if we want to focus on some questions, you know, like racial injustice, then there does need to be a kind of, I don't know, is heavier hand the right way to talk about it? But, you know, there has to be a kind of deliberately tipping the scales just to bring things into some kind of balance where the liberal project can begin. And and so I think that's the, that's where it See, starts this, to get, I think, confusing. Well, this is, the, I think that this is, this is the feature versus bug stuff, right? Is the feature of the system or a bug in the system? Because I think it, the, the great feature of the system is, is the kind of liberal open-ended conversation can, can address this problem. You know, like it, it can, it can address this, this, these structural issues by more conversation, by including more people. But, you know, this is what I always think about. It's, and this is a sort of religious example, but I, I think about when people, as, as a guy who self-identifies as a, as a religious Christian, when people always talk about, well, then how, why is the world so evil? I'm like, well, that's, Christianity's got a built-in answer to that, original sin. Like, that's not a problem. It's, it's built into the, to, to the understanding of the, of the religion, right? So you can, I think the same thing with liberalism. It sees that it, there will always be illiberal facets to structures and conversations. And so it part of it is it's, it's developmental. It's porous. It allows people to come in. And rather than, I mean, one answer is liberalism is no good because of imbalances and things like that. Let's blow it up. Or you could say, no, part of the beauty of, of classical liberal culture 
is that as it evolves and as we get more diverse society and as we enfranchise more voices that have been disenfranchised in the past is that the liberal pro- project can grow and it can ex- expand. It can learn. It can evolve. You know, it can develop like organically. It can develop um, um, immunity to certain kind of toxic things, right? Like antibodies and things like that. So I, I think that that it's built into the project. Yeah. I think the that's capacity right. to grow and learn. And and if I can be concrete, so you know, I think it's built into, you know, the base camp, for example. Yeah. Um, so earlier, earlier in the piece, Andrew Sullivan writes about, like he kind of puts up the straw man argument, kind of, I think what he's afraid of is that he says to be woke is to wake up to the truth, the blinding truth that liberal society doesn't exist, that everything is a form of oppression or resistance and that there is no third option. So you're either with us or you are to be cast into the darkness. And I think what he's saying is that, no, 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 like there is a third option where we can recognize the forms of oppression and resistance and ask, what can we do about that? Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a beautiful example of, you know, the last last get together we had, um, you know, where you know, we're sitting around the campfire and somebody raised their hands and said, in the context of everything that's happening, um, you know, we should be having a conversation about identity. And I don't think that we have... Um, all the right people around this fire to have that conversation because, because it is about a, a, a facet of diversity that, that this particular group that's just gotten together, we don't have all of the pieces. Um, so let's all take it upon ourselves to recognize that. And if we want to have that conversation to, to bring that mix of people that are missing so that we can have it. And everybody agrees that, yeah, that, that makes sense, you know, well-identified, we all are empowered to do something about it. Um, so let's do that. Let's run that experiment. And so I think you're right that you know, it, it is possible if, if the context is set up to welcome it, to, to bring the, you know, the bugs, the defects in the code, right? to bring what is wrong up. And what is right is that we have this ability to respond to it. And I think I think that's kind of you know where he he lands on you know Twitter as the antithesis of that because there is no there is no space in social media and especially on Twitter to bring up a to bring up a defect and say like hey here's something you know here is a token of oppression or resistance um, how can we how can we make it better having recognized this how can we bring this into into play like into serious play so to speak, in that this becomes the work rather yeah. than, yeah. you know, rather than the dividing line. And I think what Twitter represents, and I, I mean, I'm on Twitter. I like Twitter. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I tweet, I did, you know, like, so I'm, I'm, I'm a user of the platform and I get a lot of news through, but I think what it is at its worst or maybe at its average day, it becomes something the American founders were really wary of, right? It becomes a mob, right? And, Part of liberalism, like the Demo- liberal democratic project, as opposed to just democracy, the liberal democratic project says, look, it doesn't matter what the mob says. There are certain inalienable rights that they just can't legislate out of play, right? That every person has a certain degree of dignity and rights that, that, are, that ought to be protected and enshrined. And also, there's this sense in which the, 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 I like what he says, too, that liberalism is not, is, is not just law or government. It's a, it's a spirit of, of ideas because it's... It's not just a, a form of government that precludes mob legislation, 
but it's also a spirit that's wary of mob conversation, not just mob legislation, but mob conversation, right? That most of the time we're not going to be at our best. We're not going to form these, this robust civil society when the mob silences or shames people, right? And, and where people can't, can't reason. And again, there are certain ideas probably, now I'm going to get myself in trouble, but there are certain extremist ideas that we probably don't, I don't have a great, I, I, I will, the ACLU will defend the Ku Klux Klan's right to protest, but I don't think they're part of the great liberal conversation. But there are views that might, that, that might irritate you or might irritate me that are part, that they're not out of the sort of grand stage of, of the liberal project. And, and, and Ma, right now, again, I think there, there's a tenant. Andrew Sullivan has been, um, it's funny because yeah, I forget where I heard this, but there are these kind of two like millennial junior editors that are like screening his stuff to make sure it's not sufficiently offensive. Like, and this is a guy who, is, <laughs> this is a guy who is, I mean, in my opinion, again, and he's politically probably a little to the right of me, although he's kind of moved further leftward. He started his kind of intellectual career as a Thatcherite Reagan conservative. That is a gay man who's 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 pretty cosmopolitan. I think he's moved left, but he still probably identifies as kind of center right. But I find him one of the best public intellectual conversationalists. And to silence Andrew Sullivan, it, it's almost like there's this phrase I've heard about suicide that like the, the challenge of suicide is, is it's at the same time you're taking the life of the world, right? And I think like this this when you silence someone like Andrew Sullivan or cancel him, you're silencing the voice of the world. And, the, and that to me is totally tragic. I guess, you know, so the other, by the way, if we get canceled by this, it's my fault. <laughs> <Cancel culture. laughs> Base camp radio. Canceled. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, I love being in uncomfortable spaces. Um, that's where I learn and I grow. Um, but I also, you know, I, I, and I guess because of that, you know, I've also um, from time to time suffered from the, the, I guess, you know, I, I exposing myself to be misunderstood. Right. I think, I, I guess another dimension of this is, you know, when it, when it comes to systemic racism, so much of the oppression was about silencing. Yeah. Yeah was about diminishing or or claiming that this is being um, somehow dealt with in but that was really just a, a kind of a, a pretty looking cover for status quo is fine for us and, and and so I think that you know we we can have an abstract debate about liberalism and whether, you know, cancel culture is is shutting down the spaces, the very spaces that we need to explore and grow the project. And then we can have a kind of like topic specific debate. And and it may be that that debate changes a bit depending on the topic. Right. And it just seems to me that racism would be kind of the acid test where where the oppression is to have been canceled. <laughs> I, I, I can rightly understand how how um, how any any effort to say, whoa, 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 let's slow this down. This this needs more conversation. Will be associated with every time in the past that people said that as an excuse to not have the conversation and not take it seriously. And so, 
and, and so it's very interesting. Like, you know, I, I, again, you know, my micro example of uh, at Oxford, this, you know, colonial statue of Cecil Rhodes. And, and every year the conversation comes up, but this year they decided to take it down. And so what changed? Right. The context changed. And frankly, the conversation's been ha- had a lot. Right. So any conversations that we're going to have um, that the statue is going to helpfully provoke. I mean, if, if nobody was, was recording them for posterity, I guess that's your loss. <laughs> right. But the liberal project talked about that friggin piece of stone <laughs> a lot. So do we have to keep talking about it? Right. And, and, and so I guess that's the other question is, is when. Like, uh, do all these spaces have to be held up permanently? Or at one point, do we say in the project, okay, yeah, we've, we've, we have we've we had that space. We had this conversation. Now we've had it. And so let's move on to another conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't think the, there's anything in liberalism that precludes, like, closing chapters, right? Like, of books, you know, like, it, it, absolutely. No, I think absolutely. And that's, and I think that the strength of the project is that, I mean, I just think right now in America, there's so much being undertaken to address systemic racial injustices, which again, I don't think there, there are these cultural moments where I think that it opens up the space to make the changes and to make the big moves. I think, I think sometimes they're, they're kind of granular or gradual moves and, and gradual conversations, but then something like with um, uh, George Floyd happens. And, and, and again, we've had spending some time, you know, down in the Southeast right now and, in Atlanta, there was a, 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 a another basically execution of an African American guy, and I think that, that there's something about the space right now where people are ready for a change, and I think that that's and 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 it and it's and that's part of of the liberal DNA, right? That that we come together conversationally and make change make changes together. Sometimes the conversation is stalemated, and other times it's not. And I think it's 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 a beautiful thing right now that we're actually having hard conversations. And I think that the sort of the 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 cancel culture, the kind of mob things, what it ultimately does, it precludes hard conversations. I don't think it I, I don't think it really like fosters them or cultivates them. It precludes them. So there's another little excerpt from um And by the way, can I just qualify by saying like I, I come at this as a guy that's from the left. I mean, I'm not this is not I'm not a kind of cranky conservative on this stuff. I, I mean, I, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm kind of trying to do critique of my own side of the cultural conversation because we need the left right now. We need a vibrant, strong, reflective left um, to, to counter some of the populism in its worst forms. And, and my fear is that we're losing that in, in this cultural moment. So, yeah. And I think that, I think that Andrew has the same fear. I mean, he, so his fears, he lists them, right? He talks about we have co-workers eager to weaponize their ideology to purge the workforce. We have employers demanding our attendance at seminars and workshops to teach us ideology. We have journalists, of all people, pouring through other writers' work or records to get them in trouble, demoted, or fired. We have faculty members at colleges signing petitions to rid their departments of those few left not fully on board. We have human resource departments that have adopted this ideology whole and are imposing it as a condition for employment. And critically, we have a Twitter mob to hound people into submission. So I think I think I think you're right. Like his the hard the hard question that he's trying to trying to provoke a a debate on is I guess how do we well maybe maybe this is another way to put the question how do, how does how does um how does you know righteous injustice best express in the liberal project 
Um, and, and when does it or can it ever become weaponized in a way that, you know, actually harms the kind of personal growth that, you know, fundamentally is what, what the liberal project is, is meant to be about. We're not, we're not meant to kind of, um, be forced to be, you know, fully free and self-actualized persons. We're kind of meant to get there ourselves, right? That's kind of the hope of the project is we all get there ourselves and to get there ourselves, there needs to be, I guess, a space to, um, you know, make mistakes, apologize for them, learn from them, you know, grow together, um, practice, you know, good listening, practice the courage to call things out, have the, the compassion and the courage to navigate that journey of growth and discovery together. Um, and when it all kind of just, you know, gets shut down, right, move on, you know, there's, I guess there's a real question of how much have we really grown? Well, this is, yeah, absolutely. This is absolutely, you're absolutely correct here. And the examples I use are, are guy like Bill Maher, gets disinvited from speaking on college campuses. A guy who's, I don't know, gave a million or $2 million to Obama's campaign against Mitt Romney. I mean, he is a a pretty liberal guy. But because of some of the things he said on his show about Islamic extremism and and why don't liberals stand up for liberal ideas, like no more genital mutilation and all this stuff. And and, and kind of, you know, that sort of, those sort of conversations have, he's been deemed kind of insensitive and politically incorrect for saying those things. So what I've noticed in American university culture is, and this is why I think liberals have a tough time um, figuring out why they lose so much to conservatives, right? Because you go into university culture in America, which is overwhelmingly populated, the professors, the faculty, the culture, it's left of center by and large, right? I mean, it's just, it's just the way it is. And I can, I'm not saying that's a bad thing in the least. Again, this is kind of where I locate myself, right? Like, I'm not, this is not a criticism of that. But the hard thing is when they, when you kind of box speakers out and you're not really giving a hearing to views that half the country holds and takes seriously, right? <laughs> like, what happens is in, in this university bubble, students come out there that are liberals and they just think that, again, views that half the country holds on a wide array of issues are just not serious ideas and are just, fundamentalist and parochial and absurd and backwater. And then they're surprised that they don't know how to talk to swing voters and people, (laughs) people that are deciding elections. And Donald Trump does know how to talk to them, right? Like he, he is able to kind of marshal their cultural values. And this is the problem. I think again, as someone on the left, when you create these isolated bubbles, Liberals then don't know how to take seriously views that you don't have to agree with them. I mean, stuff I don't agree with, but but half the country thinks it, right? So you can't just dismiss it and say it's absurd and parochial. You have to figure out a way to engage it constructively, right? Well, this is, you know, like, you know, the, the, we've embarked on an endless conversation. <laughs> Yet again, <laughs> because for those of you first-time listeners – more to come <laughs> because you know there's this other kind of yeah that's right but there's this other sort of like when you say like you know, so half the country f- thinks that way so you have to engage with it um but this is where you know as a china scholar and i just think of you know the differences between civilizations is you know how much of how, how much do we need to take as a given and we got to work within the boundaries of that versus it's all just up to us yeah 
And whatever we believe is the reality, and therefore we have to take it as real and work with it. So set aside, you know, the, these complicated questions about, you know, the the state of uh, racial discourse in the U.S. right now, and think about, you know, a, a very different field like the environment. Okay, so you know, if you're if you're an environmentalist, you're like, we've got to take nature as a given. Um, and frankly, whether we want to, whether we believe that nature is at the bargaining table or not, nature is at the table. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, you know, this coronavirus, that that's nature, you know, demonstrating its bargaining power because these novel viruses, they emerge from stressed ecosystems. We've been stressing these ecosystems, so we're going to get more of these viruses. This is, nature is collecting a bill from every single man, woman, and child on earth right now, right? So nature combine that table. with climate change, right? Climate right. change, stress ecosystems, and, yeah, totally. Yeah. And so, and so, like, what's the starting point? Do we start with okay, you know, nature, nature is at the table, and so we got to take their interests on board, and then everything else about what we do with our economy, what we do with our politics and stuff, has to happen within those kind of system conditions, right? Right, right. Or we say, well, no, half of us, half of us don't believe that. And so, you know, we have to have a debate about whether nature is at the table or not. Right, so, right, right. So, and and this, I think, is, I I think this is a really tough question for the liberal yeah, project, right. which, by the way, yeah. classical liberalism, you know, when it was basically a few white men, you know, landholders in London, here we are, right, um, talking about what is right for the country. Nature, they, the nature, they didn't recognize nature at the table, right? There was... There was no constraint upon what could be. It was all up to us. Um, and so I don't know if the whole, you know, liberal tradition even evolved with a notion of the the boundaries of play, unless maybe we would say it was kind of a Judeo-Christian thing. And so those boundaries were imported. And, and maybe that is true. Maybe that is the kind of moral resource that... Um, you know, anyone oppressed within liberal tradition has had to draw upon is some kind of, you know, the these moral boundaries of right and wrong in order to kind of set the rules of of what is up for debate because half of us feel that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, what yeah. is and not because it's immoral. Right. This is where I'm gonna sound like I'm contradicting myself, which is okay. This is part of a base <laughs> camp culture, it's part of the Alice project, but so I want to say that one of the dangers, I think, and they talk about this in the show Newsroom, is one of the problems in liberalism can be the bias towards fairness. So the idea that there's two sides to every story, right? Well, no. Sometimes there's one side. Sometimes there's 19 sides, right? And so so I think like on climate change, for instance, I'm, I, I think like the fact that the planet is warming and that we are contributing to it, that seems like there's not two sides to that based on most of the scientific consensus. Now, what we do to remedy it, that's a lot of different sides. How much do we wait hmm. um, curbing yeah. the economy? How much it, do we... It, how, it's like the debate right now between like, you know, health and economy, you know, public right, health and the economy. Right. We could, we should have a real debate about those yes. trade-offs. Yeah. Yeah. And that, not so that's one like, way to right, respond right. to coronavirus, but that coronavirus is here and it's it's a very successful virus right now. And in, in, like, we shouldn't be debating that it exists. Right. Or, or that it's, or that it's extremely contagious or these things. But I, I think you're absolutely right because we have to deal with the fact we're not going to get a vaccine in the next year. I just feel like that's, I mean, people are just saying that. And I think that's fantasy land. I mean, it, it, maybe it's possible, so, but it, right. the so, odds would be against it. So I, I feel like now, so now it connects. Now it almost seems brilliantly like I intended to land here, but we're talking about the environment 
And so, you know, so racism exists. Yes. We can have a debate about what we're going to do about it. Right. But we shouldn't have a debate about whether it exists or not. Right. right. And I think, I think that might be a good way to summarize when it's done well, you know, what the, what the discourse about systemic racism is right now. And, and what people don't want is people, no, 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 it doesn't exist. That, that seems to be the same kind of, of, of willful disbelieving of one's senses that somehow shouldn't be permissible yeah, in yeah. the liberal project. Right. right. And, I, and I think that we are really struggling with that. And now we're getting into the whole kind of postmodernism thing, which, which I would really appreciate if you could f- solve that for me. <laughs> you know, but, but this sense that, that it, it's becoming harder and harder to bring these givens into our public discourse because we have this kind of, you know, kind of lazy armchair theory back there that says, I don't have to take anything as given. Right, right. And what's amazing to me, at least, in, I don't know how this works in England, but in the United States, I've seen this amazing, startling and, and curious reversal where, you know, over the past few decades, you had the left saying everything's perspectival. You can have your truth from a feminist perspective or a, a culturally, racially situated perspective or something like that, right? And and that there's not one truth. There's all these perspectives on the truth. And conservatives would say, oh, that's kind of relativistic gobbledygook and there's me it's going to ruin society and what about science and whatever everything so then what's happened lately in the age of trump is it's flipped you've got the trump people saying well i have alternative facts <laughs> and, no. alter- <laughs> and, then well, you, and then you have or- the liberals going give us old-fashioned objectivity there's science there's facts so it's been very interesting like th- that these it, just the nature of the conversation because trump has figured a way to take the kind of postmodern sort of relativistic move and use it and weaponize it uh, for right-wing populism. It's, and the thing is, so I think a good example is this phrase that, oh, there are a few bad apples, right? And right now it's about police brutality, but you know, it's, it is a common trope across, you know, it, it is a great, you know, as a debater, a professional debater, it's a great tactic whenever you want to say, like, no, 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 there's not some large systemic problem. There's just a few bad apples. That doesn't exist. You know, sure, the examples that you put in front of me, you know, with video evidence, those examples exist. But what you say they exemplify, <laughs> that doesn't exist. Right. And so yes. you're saying we, we you're saying we need to solve that, and I'm saying that doesn't exist. You're saying this is a given, and I'm saying no, it's not. Yeah, yeah. And and it seems to me, you know, Andrew Sullivan saying I want to have a space where we can have this conversation, but but that's what's destroying the space is the denial of the existence of something that we need to talk about. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yeah. So so maybe, and so that's maybe where. I'm not saying I disagree with Andrew Sullivan because if you give a fair reading to his whole piece, it's, it's magisterial. I mean, like he, he touches on, you know, so many of his own caveats that it's, I don't know how he doesn't twist himself into a knot. It's brilliant. So I don't want to oversimplify or mischaracterize what he's talking about, but, but I feel like maybe let me put it this way. Remember I did that Ted talk a year ago, which kind of, you know, you, you and I could understand, but very few people could understand. I love that talk. Well, I remember I remember ta- talking about it with you on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. So, uh, thank you. I but you know where I, where I was left there is you know really what the project needs to be is you know, kind of we've all got to move past our own truths, 
and and search for a stronger truth together. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. where where it all starts to break down is where we say, no, 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 I've got truth. Well, I don't need to look for it anymore. If I've got the truth, then I don't need for you to have a voice anymore. You're just going to complicate it, right? I need you to shut up and and see my truth, and and then everything will be fine. Yeah, and, there, yeah and, I think, and so there's yeah, a real yeah. danger about holding our own truth so tightly that there is no longer any need to hear other people. And I think that's kind of what Andrew is getting to when he looks at Twitter as the exemplar of how bad it can be that we can all just sort of hold on to and surround ourselves with what we know. And it's so complete an understanding of the world that there's that there's no need for democracy anymore. Yeah, no, it's, no, the, it's all just like waiting my turn to oppress your side who doesn't get it. <laughs> the person who's been most instructive on some of this stuff for me is the philosopher Michael Polanyi, who is a philosopher of science and really kind of was is it, he was he was a Jewish emigre from Germany, got out before the Holocaust, went to England, was a was a practicing kind of chemist bio, biochemist or something. And then he became a philosopher of science, but he was wanted to point out that the way science works, it's very subjective, right? You have opinions, you have passions, you have this, and so then you develop a hypothesis, and then he says, you know, you, then you you try to experiment or validate that experiment in the wider public scientific community that's you know peer reviewed and validated. So he says, rather than talk about objective or subjective truth, let's talk about public and private truth. And so what happens is, you know, you, you've got your private truth, but you think you, this is a personal truth, but you have a, a, a community or whatever that, that decides that really this is true for everybody. And how you validate that is you put it into the public standard and attempt to say that, look, I think you can look at this thing from a million different sides and you're going to see that this truth holds up in the public. You know, you can look at it from this perspective, from this angle, from that angle. And so that kind of thing, where, whereas I think what, what Andrew is saying, which I, I take as, as pretty right on is that Twitter becomes a kind of big expansion of private. It's not a public. It's not a deliberative public, right? It tends to be, well, I mean, it can be, not that it couldn't be. And there are some good exchanges on Twitter. I'm not saying that, but in, in general, it devolves right into a kind of mob private space. Yeah. My validates everybody's. Good, yeah. I'm yeah. Say. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's an echo chamber. It's, it, it's a whole, the whole echo chamber factor. So yeah, I think that that's, to me, I think what Sullivan's trying to defend is something like what Polanyi says is, the success of science, it's got this kind of private versus public truth mechanism where, where it's got a pretty good, it's developed a pretty good standard for tearing up maps that don't work and drawing new maps and, and that kind of thing because it's, but, but it's not, it's not as though science hmm. is bereft of subjectivity and hunches and passions and intuitions. It's just that there's a mechanism that's set up so that that framework can harness those, can get them in dialogue with each other and then produce something different or produce something wider. So I, I feel like that's the, that's, I think you just stuck the landing there, at least in my head for this, this particular conversation. And if, if we always try to stick the landing by kind of coming back to, you know, so what's wrong with our current maps or what's a map we need to tear up or what's a map that we need to improve. And, and I think actually maps is a great metaphor for understanding social movements, you know, particularly Black Lives Matter and, and, and what's at stake. Because I think, I think what it is you know, and I can almost contrast sort of, you know, Black Lives Matter and there's just a few bad apples. And, you know, Black Lives Matter for me is it represents if we're looking at a map saying like this continent has been missing from our map of the world. There is a continent here that that we need to see was missing from our map. And 
you know, the phrase a few bad apples is basically saying, no, there's not. And, and I think that that is the kind of existential debate at the moment. That's and just think, saying we got to touch, we got to touch up the map a little here, but there's no new continent. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. 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 I don't yeah. know what, I don't know what you're talking about. Right. But so I think that, and, and it may be, and maybe this is sort of how social movements work that in the context to get the new, like the missing continent recognized, you know, maybe you do need to, you know, push pretty hard against the current maps to get that done. Right. But then, you know, once it's there, okay, well, and now we can explore this continent together. So it feels to me like there's sort of two phases, right? There's the like putting it on the map, something that is a giant part of a reality that just you know wasn't clear enough for everybody who is carrying around their maps of the world. Um, but then once you put it there, you do need to kind of open it up for exploration, right? If you put it there, and then there's just a handful of people who say, and and only us are qualified to explore this terrain. We will tell you what we find there, and you will accept our discoveries. I think that once you put it on the map, then the liberal project says, all right, and let's open it up for exploration. But you can't but, just erase it off the map. You got to take yeah. it as a given that it's there. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think and, what you're saying is wise, right? It, it, for those who are marginalized, it's always going to take more energy to get things on the map, right? And that's where I think it does. Those people that are in positions of privilege are kind of obligated, probably in a sense, to, to, to be aware of, of, where uh, be be looking more deliberately at where maybe we need we need map, make, map makers involved in the conversation who aren't involved in the conversation yet. Well, and I think you know, and as a kind of underlying, I think a good way to go through life is with the is with the guess that our current map is is actually like we we think we're so advanced, you know, we're the most advanced humans who have ever lived on this earth, and that's true. But I think that our current map of reality is still mostly incomplete. <laughs> Yeah, the challenge is there's, figuring out where 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 the where the blank spot where the blank yeah, spaces are, yeah, are and the blank spots, and you never know that. But but I think to go through with the attitude that it's like it's it's mostly undiscovered is also you know kind of fundamental to a healthy liberal project. Yeah, because if it's mostly undiscovered, then you know okay, then you know I'm mostly curious, and and you found out oh my god we've been missing that okay add that to the map right. And, and let's get to the exploration stage. The, so much of the resistance is, you know, stems from a sense that the map is complete. Yeah. No, no, we've got the map, right? Oh, you're right. A few bad apples. Okay, we missed a couple trees there, right? If you're going to get, if you're going to quibble over details, we could redraw the map at a, you know, at a, at a, at a, at a you know, a more fine scale of resolution. But we've basically got the map. If, if we're walking around with that, then, you know, I don't need these conversations. I don't need your, I don't need your righteousness. You're just, you're just complicating a picture that's fine. Um, so, so there's a, yeah, there's, there's a really close connection, I think, between discovery and curiosity and humility, which to me are kind of some of the, like, the unlisted core values of, you know, a, a, a multicultural, multiracial liberal society. And maybe that's part of what all this is, is kind of reconnecting with some of those, you know, kind of the fundamental mindset of the explorer. Yeah. And this is sort of the fu fundamental ethos of base camp, right? That w you come into it knowing that most of the world is stuff we don't know. Uh, and we're trying to, through question and engagement and dialogue, we're trying to sort of make maps, get pictures together 
because you know we've got fewer blind spots together. Yeah, and like when things go wrong, right, in the world or with our projects, and we get stuck, you know, yeah, come back to base camp and 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 assume it's probably because we're missing something. I mean, we're missing most things still. So if this isn't working right, it's probably because we're missing something. Well, what is that missing thing? And it seems to me a good way to try to answer that is to get together, you know, a diverse group of people who are interested in that thing you're looking for and say, well, what do you see, you know, from where you stand? Now, I am very interested um, and interested is a very safe word. You know, next week when we get together and we talk about, you know, so what are we missing in our understanding of identity and in how we think about we and they? us and them. Because I, I think that's really going to, you know, kind of put to the test our capacity to be curious, to be explorers, and and to, you know, yeah, listen with, you know, courage and compassion to the journeys that we've all been on. I, I, I can't wait. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it might be one of the, the most worthy conversations we've had yet. Absolutely. I'm excited. And any of our listeners, if you want to take part in the base camp, reach out to us, send us an email and we can tell you how to get an invitation because we'd love to have you on the journey with us. Scott. Okay. So I said I only had half an hour for this intellectual gym 54 session. 54 minutes. As buddy. usual, you've kept me, you've kept me training a lot harder than I meant to be. <laughs> 54 minutes, my friend. This was fantastic as always. Thank you, yeah, my friend. So good to see you. Good to be on the journey with you. Yeah. You too. Take it easy. <laughs>